Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking Dreams. I am your host with the most, Amateur Podcast. My name is Rajiv. Before we go any further, we are on the Twitter and the Instagram. That's at Talking Dreams. That's at T-A-L-K. The letter N like Nancy, D-R-E-A-M-S. On those pages, you will find our link tree. And on the link tree, you'll find the right podcast platform for you to listen to the show. So... Make sure that you are on the right podcast platform for yourself and hit that subscribe button. It is a milestone episode for us here at Talking Dreams today. This is our 50th episode, baby! That's right, and what better way to have a milestone episode than to have an amazing guest? And my guest is Freddie Coleman. Freddie Coleman is one of the hosts of my favorite sports talk show on radio, and that is the Freddie and Fitzsimmons show that airs Monday through Friday from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on ESPN Radio. He and Ian Fitzsimmons have a fantastic time with their show, amazing segments, and it's just great to listen to them and their analysis of what's going on in the world of sports. Freddie and I talk about his beginnings getting into radio, how that wasn't originally his dream, and how he found his way to it. We also talk about the steps that he had taken in order to start in a local market, as well as to work his way to ESPN and ESPN Radio. And we just have a great chat, and it's super inspirational, super informative. Freddie is a wealth of knowledge, and he has quite a few amazing stories about his journey to get to where he is now, and I'm sure that you're all going to really enjoy it. We do have an inspirational quote this week, and here it is. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. That was Winston Churchill. Let's get to Freddy. All right, so I have with me a man who is extremely well-respected, not just in his field, but also in life. He co-hosts my personal favorite radio show, which you can catch Monday through Friday from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80, the Freddie and Fitzsimmons show. He is the man with the golden voice. He is Freddie Coleman, and we are going to let the good times roll. Freddie, how are you doing today, my brother? I'm good. I should have you as my agent of my rep because that's a pretty introduction, pretty great introduction. I don't know if I'll be able to live up to, but we're going to have a lot of fun today. No doubt about that. Oh, we are definitely going to have some fun. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, this is going to be an interview where my voice is going to feel very inferior the entire time. So because you are the man with the golden voice. I I, I don't know about all that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Freddie, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know that you are a very busy man. ESPN keeps you as busy as possible, which is awesome, especially for fans like myself. But for people that don't know who you are, can you give a brief overview of who you are, what you currently do, hobbies, if you feel like throwing that in just a bit to let anyone know who does not know who you are? Well, one of the things, and I'm glad you really put it that way, because it can be very easy that you're tied to what you do for a living or what company that you work for. And one of the main things I tell people all the time that I'm so blessed to work at ESPN, but it's where I work. It's not who I am totally. And I continue to make sure that people understand that there's always going to be more to me because I'm still trying to find out about myself and what continues to make me tick and what continues to work for me and whatever the environment is going to be around me. So I've always been a big believer. The one thing that people are always going to find out about me, no matter what I'm doing, is that I'm a very curious person by nature. And when you have so many different things in life, that you can ask questions about, that you can find out stuff about. You should always have the curiosity to the nth degree. And that is something that has always been a hallmark of me in my life, not just a perfect from a professional standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. So that's the one thing I let people know about me instantly that something catches my attention. I'm going to do everything I can to find out and get to the bottom of it or find out what makes that person happen or how those things had to happen. So that's been the big factor of how I'm wired when it comes to Freddie Coleman. 
Oh, that's great. You know, I always, one of the big things about me too, is that I, I know that I don't know everything and there's no way that I'm going to know everything. So I, what I try to do is I try to learn at least one thing every single day, whether it's in my professional life, my personal life about somebody else. And I think that's one of the reasons why I do this show is because, you know, I, I want to learn, I want to figure out how people get to where they are, how people tick, what they love about what they do and personal life. So I think that's awesome. One of the things that one of my cousins, Judge Brian Jr., who lives in South Carolina, one of the most profound things that he said a while ago when somebody asked him a question and he gave an answer and he said, is there anything else? He said, nope, can't tell you what I don't know. I can only tell you what I know. And I think a lot of people try to blur that line, because if you if you always put it out there that you feel you don't know everything, people think that's a weakness. And no, that is because there has not been anybody in the history of planet Earth that knows everything about everything or everybody. And I think too many times people think that you have to fake it all the time to show that you have that intellectual, I don't say superiority, but that intellectual cap capability and capacity. Sometimes the most intellectual people, the ones that always want to find out stuff that they don't know about and the ones who aren't the most intelligent always try to convey that belief that they know more than you or that they know more than people believe that they should. So I thought it was very profound that my cousin said something like that because you can only know what you know and what you're able to figure out along the way absolutely it's definitely a strength not a weakness that you don't know everything so as a kid what was your dream and aspiration <laughs> uh i tell people all the time i had so many dreams i probably drove myself crazy going to bed each night. <laughs> i wanted to be a football player because i love watching the new york jets and dallas cowboys growing up i, I wanted to, i felt i could do something in sports but i really didn't know what that was going to be but playing my heroes we're playing football, we're playing basketball, we're playing baseball. And I always wanted to do something along those lines. And as I got older and older, I realized how tough it was to be a part of something like that. But that didn't mean that I was going to put that dream on hold. So I never had the, you always have, if you ask a kid what they wanted to be in second or third grade, I want to be president. I want to be an astronaut. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be, but I knew that I was going to have a lot of fun trying to find out what that was because I didn't close my mind to just one particular thing. And I never criticize anybody that have one specific dream that they want to hold on to and try to achieve. I think that's fantastic. That just wasn't for me. It wasn't something that I said, that's what I want to be. And I'm going to put every energy into trying to be that or trying to attain that. That was something that I never, ever made part and parcel of each and every day, whether it was going to school, hanging out with friends, being around your family. I was willing to find out what that was going to entail because that's exactly how life is going to be, even if you did not realize it at the time. So there wasn't any one particular thing or one particular vocation that I said, that's what I want to do. But I guess it was there all the time because I loved radio as a kid. I was a radio head and still a radio head until this day where radio DJs, those were the superstars to me. I put them on the same line as actors and actresses and singers and performers. People like Frankie Crocker and the old WNEW days with Scott Muni and Pete Fornital, Chuck Leonard, who worked at 98.7 Kiss in New York. Those were the people that really, really I gravitated towards. And I remember being a kid listening to WABC radio before they went news talk in the late 70s. And I love Dan Ingram and Ron Lundy and the late George Michael and people like that. It just seemed such a really cool thing that you could be on radio and have your voice be heard by so many different people at any time of the day. I didn't realize that at that time I was going to do something like that because I never thought out that far. I never thought I was going to be on that kind of level because that's exactly how otherworldly they were to me, listening to them day by day and night by night. So how old would you say you were when you realized that broadcasting was the route that you wanted to go? It really happened in college because when I went to Manchester University, class 1987, MU for life, by the way, when I was a matriculated Manchester University in Pennsylvania, I wanted to be, I was a political science major because I love the political process, how things happen where certain states got this many electoral college votes and how zoning happened and gerrymandering and all those things from the past. I'm always fascinated by the history of politics and not just in the United States. And that was something that I really thought I could sink my teeth into. But Manchester University is a really good communications program. And a friend of mine wanted me to do a voiceover for a project that she was working on in the communications department. And I had a chance to go to the school radio station on campus. It 
It was located at the bottom of the basement. I would never forget it on South Road instead in the South Road building. And the minute that I was in there and talking with different people and doing the voiceover spot for her, I immediately went through the registrar's office and changed my major because I said, that's the, that's something I really wanted to do. And at first it could have been regarded as a knee jerk reaction, but it really, really wasn't because I found myself being there at the radio station more and more every day because I just love the energy and the environment about it. And I should have known better because one of my favorite TV shows of all time is WKRP in Cincinnati. And anytime you talk about Venus Flytrap and Dr. Johnny Fever and, and Herb Tarlick and Les Nesman, and it was just such a great TV show. And I didn't realize that's exactly what radio was, but that was kind of dumbing it down, to be honest with you. <laughs> but having a chance to be around that and changing my major, that's when it really, really bit me when it came to that broadcasting bug, especially radio. So what would you say once you actually started to pursue it? What what did you think about that? Like, did you think, oh, you know, I, I've got this amazing voice here. It's going to be a breeze. Or did you know that it's going to be extremely difficult to get to where you would want to go? Boy, that's a really good question because I never thought about having this amazing voice. I guess when you hear it coming out of your mouth every day, you don't really put a label on it. That, that is something that I never was able to do. Although I'll never forget when I first hit puberty, my voice changed. People call my mom and dad's house and ask for my dad, thinking it was me, saying, hey, Freddie, how you doing? Because my dad and I have the same name. I said, hold on, let me get my father from that standpoint. So I clearly understood maybe a little bit that that was different compared to what happened when it comes to nature. But I guess I never went into it thinking how hard or how, challenge, or how challenging or how easy it was going to be because I've always been a big believer that whenever you have a chance to try to do something, that first step is always going to be the hardest step. And when you're in college, you know, that first job that you're trying to get is really going to be hard to because there's so many different places and you have to hope that somebody hears what you're hoping that they want to hear from you and take a chance on you. So I never put it on any kind of level in terms of degree of difficulty or degree of non-difficulty. I never did that because I, I automatically assumed that it was not going to be easy because when you see people in the real world working at jobs, especially jobs they don't want to deal with or want to do, you know how hard that can be. So I believe that was a, I was a little further ahead of that because I was having a chance to want to do something that I wanted to do that I really wanted to be a part of. So uh, can you walk us through the steps to becoming a sportscaster? Like what degree did you get in school? Because I know you can get a broadcasting degree and be on the radio and TV, or you can get a journalism degree and, and be on TV and radio. So walk us through uh, what degree you got, what steps you took to get there. And did you have to do any internships or anything like that to get started? Yeah, I had a Bachelor of Arts. I attained a Bachelor of Arts in Mass Communication from Manchester University, and I minored in journalism. And one of the things I tell people about whatever you decide to do, learn everything about it. And I was really, really blessed that Manchester University really encouraged everybody in their majors, but specifically in the mass communication major to learn everything. So we learned about cameras. We learned about being a technical director. We learned about being a producer. We learned about being in front of the microphone and how to put scripts together, how to put a newscast together, how to organize a show. One of the projects that I had in one of my remaining classes at Mansfield was that we had to put together a radio station and how we present it. So we learned about demographics and what kind of format you wanted and understanding the people in that area and what they liked and what they didn't like and trying to put together a radio station that would be able to get their attention from the jump. So I tell people all the time, no matter what you're going to try to do or what you want to do, learn about every different thing because the best thing that you can have other than avail availability in our business is versatility. And if you've shown the ability that you can do so many different things and do them well, not just average, but do them above average, you make yourself very, very marketable and you make it to the point where people don't want to be without your skill set when it comes to something like that. So I was really, really glad that all the things I learned back then for radio and TV, I was able to transfer that when I first got into radio. And then I was able to have happen to make that transition to TV later on in my career where it wasn't a foreign concept to me because I knew what a frezzy was. I knew how to put the frezzy lights together. I knew about white balance. I knew about all those things. I would not have been able to have that in terms of my toolbox if I didn't go to a school like Manchester University who taught me all those things 
had willing professors who knew and had the know-how to teach you those things. And there were plenty of students, whether they were upperclassmen or underclassmen, that were willing to be bought in with you to make everybody better, not only from an individual standpoint, but also from a collective standpoint. So that's a big step of learning, 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 and never stop learning. The minute that you believe that you don't have to learn anymore, that's when you need to find something else to do because that business, this business will continue to pass you by if you believe that you don't have to worry about learning something else. Yeah, and it's the same. Uh, I got a theater degree when I went to college. So it's the same thing with theater is like you they want you to learn everything, learn about the backstage crew, learn about lighting, learn about sound. It's not just mm-hmm. acting. It's not just directing like like, yeah, maybe that's what you want to work towards. But in order to get there, you need to understand all these little steps as well. So I think it's really cool that when uh, you were going through your radio background that you you were working on learning every little thing as well. So uh, kudos to you as well to keep that mentality too, because uh, like, like I said, I'm, I'm such a big fan of you, Freddie. I'm just going to keep hyping you up so much this whole time, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, cause I have, I have you like way up here as far as radio broadcasters and TV broadcasters. So it's really cool to me to hear that you are still this humble with your radio career. Well, this business, whether you work at ESPN or anywhere else, it can humble you quickly if mm. you don't have enough enough wherewithal to realize that there are plenty of people that are gunning for your spot, whether it's on a national level, whether it's on a local level. And one of the best things to me about working at ESPN radio is that even, you don't have to have that humility, but you're going to run into moments that'll bring that humble pie to your table. You got to take a big spoonful and deal with that. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the best things, I think, working at the local level, because you can't think that you're bigger than where you are. You can believe that you're a big fish in a small pond, but that doesn't mean that that's how that's going to go. There are people that are big fish in that small small pond before you got there, and they're going to be playing big fishes in that small pond whenever you leave what you're told to leave. So that's one of the things that's always going to be really part and parcel of what we do, that every day, every day, everybody can be part of a fluid situation. And the more you understand that and continue to work at your craft, the better involved you're going to be, the better in terms of you're going to feel that, okay, I've been able to conquer this. What other mountains can I conquer to make sure that I want to continue to be a part of this business? Because as I've seen, I've been somebody that's fired from three different jobs when it comes to media. People will quickly move on because that's how life is. Everybody thinks that the sun is not going to shine. They're not part of something tomorrow. That's not how life works. And that's not how business works. And the more that you have that comprehension about that, that's not to say that you have to deal with things well. No one wants to be told that you're not good enough. Nobody wants to be told that you are not a quality person for this job or that you're not as good as somebody else. That can be a very jarring thing to hear. But it's happened to people before and it'll happen to people again. And how you rebound from that. And I firmly believe that everybody's capability to rebound it from that. How you do that will be a test of what exactly how you're going to go about things, whether you're able to stay in this business or not stay in our business. Yeah. And, and speaking of being humble and starting at the local level, you know, it's often said that when you start your career, you definitely have humble beginnings. So what would you say were the humble beginnings for Freddie Coleman? The first job I was able to get out of college was working in Portland, Maine at a top 40 station. And I interned there first. I had done internships before in New York. I had a chance to intern at Z100 and also at WLIR, which is one of my favorite stations. They were alternative station that played The Cure and Depeche Mode and YouTube. Yes. Man, I was tasty pudding the minute I discovered that station <laughs> back in 1983. And then I had a chance post-college to intern at WNEW, one of the favorite rock stations of all time in New York, along with back then it was Hot 103, became Hot 97. So I had a chance to be in so many different internship situations and different formats to make that work. And the first job I had, I interned there first at FM 103, and then a position opened up being an overnight radio DJ working from three to five every night. And you could have told me that I was King Midas when I finally <laughs> got a chance to be a part of that. And that Pete Cassandra, the program director, took a chance on me and liked what he heard and said, I think this guy can be a radio professional. So it's really cool that 
you can work in a market like that because I've, I've had friends of mine that have worked in lower markets and not as great of a market that Portland, Maine is. And mm. Portland, Maine is a really underrated market. Terrific TV stations, terrific radio personalities. So many different people have been able to break out of that market. For example, my, uh, for example, um, Gary Thorne, longtime hockey and baseball announcer, got his start in Portland, Maine. Mike Doc Emmerich, maybe the best hockey announcer ever. The first job he ever had was in South Portland, Maine, being the, the play-by-play broadcaster for the minor league affiliate of the Boston Bruins. So it's really been kind of a fertile market that has been able to have people go on and go to Boston and go to New York and places like that. So I could not have picked a better market to get a start in, not knowing exactly where that was going to go or kind of path I was going to have to travel. But having that as a first step really kind of determined exactly how I wanted to be in this business and stay in it and be successful at it as well. Did you uh, did you ever do any jazz, especially with that voice? I could hear you like, yeah, welcome to Smooth Jazz 94. This is Freddie Coleman. Uh. <laughs> Here's the deal with that. There weren't a lot of smooth jazz stations around when I first got started. There was CD 101 in New York, and that was really the only one. But also at that time, there weren't any sports talk radio stations. Mm. WFAN did not get started until after I graduated from Mansfield University in 1987. And the first time I heard about that, I said, hold up. You mean there's a station that's going to talk sports for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and news and music are not going to get in the way. I was like, man, where do I sign up to hear this station <laughs> when it comes to WFN? But I, I want to be that next great FM radio jock because that's what I heard and that's what I wanted to be once I was able to get my feet on the ground a little bit and get that started. So I wanted to be that Scott Shannon, what I heard of W, w um, Z100 in New York. I wanted to be a guy like that. I wanted to be along those lines and have that kind of flavor to my game. But there were no smooth jazz stations out there. There was some doing smooth jazz on the weekends on R&B stations, especially in Boston. But there was never a full-fledged smooth jazz station. But if that had come about, I would not have turned that down. That would play music like that. So you you hear about WFAN and you're still working on the FM stations doing doing the alternative and the rock stations. Where where did sports talk come into play for you? You heard about WFAN? Did you try to get a job there? You you said, "Hey, where do I sign up?" or did you have to find a whole new market in order to get there? Well, see, I never wanted to be in sports talk radio when I first got started because I'm a music head and that was mm-hmm. something that I believed that was going to be the best for me, but Right around the early 2000s, when I'm working in the Hudson Valley, Poughkeepsie, New York, and I was working at WPDH, the classic rock station, then the oldies station, oldies 97. So I was doing that. But I have friends of mine that were doing sports talk radio shows, sports talk radio shows, excuse me, in the Hudson Valley. And one of my friends is Rick Zolzer, who is the PA announcer for the Hudson Valley Renegades. He's the PA announcer for the New Jersey Nets during their run to the NBA finals. And Zolz and I have known each other for years. He was part of the morning show WPDH before I came back to work part-time and then full-time. And he was doing a daily sports talk radio show on the AM station, part of the whole cluster stations that owned WPDH and Oldies 97. And I got a chance to guest on his show when I was working in TV at that time, first for Medium One that became Cablevision. And it got to a point that he really liked the the sports knowledge I was bringing to the table. He had me filling for him a couple of times when he went on vacation or he had to take a personal day. That's when it really kind of ramped up for me that maybe I could do something like this. But at that point, I was still in TV. I was doing that full time, working for mm-hmm. media one, doing Maris basketball and things like that. And when that job downsized and it moved, it moved on from me, not the other way around. Then all of a sudden I said, okay, what other opportunities out there that I really want to be able to do this? And little by little, I wound up getting into Albany and doing music radio and being part of the sports talk radio station, the Fox affiliate up there. And a buddy of mine, John Tobin, who I knew from my WPDH days when I did overnights and he did the mornings, he had moved to Albany to do the morning show, but he wanted to be in sports talk radio. And his wife, Michelle, said, you and Freddie would make a really, really good team in terms of that. So he got in contact with me. And in the year of 2003, Every Saturday during the month of August, we had a chance to do a show and management liked what they heard. And then we became a full time show the day after the Patriots Panthers Super Bowl in February 2004. So that was really my entrance, my foray into sports talk radio. And eventually you find your way at ESPN. And how did that come to be? And did you ever imagine when you started in those local markets in Portland, Maine, that you would be on national radio and TV? No, I never thought that. I mean, that's not something that 
it's, I can't say I didn't want to do that because that'd be foolish to say that. Of course, you want to get <laughs> to do something on the national level, whether it's TV, radio, whatever that's going to be. But I had just gotten to Albany and I love Albany as a radio and TV market. I'd always wanted to work up there when I worked in Poughkeepsie, New York. I said, man, that that could be a potential holy grail if you don't get a chance to work in New York City. And I did get a chance to work in New York City, working for a soul music radio station in 1997 before I wound up going back to the Hudson Valley. So I always wanted that if I could, I said, if I could ever get to Albany, then I, that means I'm doing something because that's a quality, quality market. So once I got the job there in February 2004 and I'm doing sports talk radio five days a week, I'm working part time as well in the classic rock station on the weekend. So I'm thinking I can be pretty good here for a long, long time make my name in the capital district and make that work. And right about May of 2004, I'd only been there since February, like I mentioned, Jason Barrett, who at that time was the producer of Game Night in ESPN Radio, he got in touch with me. I'll never forget. It was a Monday, the, the second Monday in May. And it sounds like a radio song, to be honest with you, on the second Monday in May. <laughs> and he got in touch with me and he says, how married are you to the Tobin and Coleman show? And I said, why would you ask me a question like that? And he said, because we have an opening on game night and my boss, Bruce Gilbert, heard you and he didn't know that we knew each other. And I said, man, I think he'd be really good for this spot. So he got in touch with me. He told me to send my stuff up to him. So I sent it up to him. And about a couple of days later, Dave Zaslowski, who was the manager of game night at that time, he now works in Chicago, part of the White Sox radio network. He said that, yeah, I got your stuff ready. We would like to bring you up for an audition. So I'm thinking oh my goodness, this is actually could be potentially happening that I get a chance to walk in these doors. So they said, can you come up and do game night on Saturday and Sunday? And at that time, I'm working Saturdays at PIX 106, the classic rock station. So I found an excuse not to do the show on Saturday and be up there for game night on Saturday and Sunday. So I get up there. It's Memorial Day weekend. Indy 500 is going on. And Jason Barrett told me this later. Now he's in charge of Barrett Sports Media, who does a great job as a consultant. He said, I was so concerned for you because it wasn't as if a lot of things were going on. It was in the middle of the NBA playoffs, but no games were going on. Indy 500 was big and everything. And Jason said, I wonder if I set up Freddie to fail, but I never thought about it that way. <laughs> Here's the deal. So I get there. I meet Dave Zaslowski. It was great to talk to Jason again. I meet John Seibel, who was one of the hosts of Game Night at that time, and also Sean Salisbury, who was doing it as well. And then it dawned on me that the audition was going to be live on national radio. Mm -hmm. They didn't bring me to a room. They didn't bring me to a booth, put a scenario in front of me and said, figure it out. That was the audition. So once I got the heebie-jeebies out of my way about that, <laughs> I basically said, well, I'm just going to be me because that got me this attention anyway to have a chance to do something like this. So I said, whatever happens, even if it doesn't work, the plan B is OK, because that was my plan B, thinking ESPN radio. Plan A was still to be in Albany, not thinking for one second that I was going to be able to get that job, even though I got the audition. And right after the show was over, Dave Zaslowski comes to me and said, can you do next weekend? I said, OK, I must have done something really good to get his attention that way that right after the show, he wasn't he didn't have a look of horror on his face <laughs> that I did that. And I said, well, I can do next Sunday. I can't do next Saturday and Sunday because I had to tell kind of a fib to get here to do this. But I can. He said, that's fine. I can do next Sunday. But the next week, I can do Saturday and Sunday. See, I can figure out something. And so I kept auditioning and auditioning, auditioning. And then I'm driving to work. It was the one week and I didn't have to audition, which I was cool with at that standpoint. I'm sure that they wanted to bring other people in. And I'm driving up to work that Monday to do my regular job. And Bruce Gilbert gets on the phone with me and he says, we want to hire you full time at ESPN Radio. And he worked out the parameters and we'll work that out a little bit later. But we want to say welcome to the ESPN Radio family. And I'll never forget it because I'm on the New York Thruway and I'm right past the Sargonese exit where I pull over. And I talked to Bruce Gilbert and that phone conversation lasted about 10 to 15 minutes. And Bruce Gilbert's one of the smartest people that I've ever met in radio and in life. He is he is a guy that sets the template for what people still do on radio, whether it's Fox, CBS Sports Radio and the ESPN radio. And as, as soon as that conversation was over, I put the phone down, had tears in my eyes thinking, wow. I can't believe I have a chance to finally be here. And I said, I don't care if it's one day. I don't care if it's one year. I can't believe I finally was able to get to a place where the Chris Bermans and the Stuart Scotts and the Robin Roberts, I get a chance to walk through those doors to be a part of that whole setting when it comes to ESPN and ESPN radio. And who knew that 18 years later, I'm still getting a kick out of working for this company and enjoying each and every day.
Man, that is such an inspirational story, Freddie. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that getting that phone call brought tears to your eyes. Is it because there were there roadblocks and struggles along the way too to get to that point that really brought that emotion out of you? Oh, there's no doubt about that, because I think of all the all the faces I have been around the places that I have been. And you just never know. Like I mentioned, you just never know where that's going to lead. But the one thing that really jumped out to me with that kind of emotion was that the journey was worth it. Even if I did not get the job at ESPN radio, just having a chance to audition for a national network, that journey was worth it. That all those times where you help out at events and you're setting up stuff as an intern or working late nights, trying to keep your eyes away because you work at two different jobs in addition to that one. Some of the people you had to deal with along those lines that through hurdles and barriers in front of you, you're able to overcome those barriers and overcome those people. So many great friendships I was able to form along the way that are still friends to this day, whether I first started in Portland, Maine or anybody else I was able to work with throughout that time. All those things flooded to the surface because it was part of that journey. And it's still a journey. There's no doubt about that. Just because you get to a place and you made it doesn't mean that the journey stops right there. And that is something I think a lot of people feel to realize that that's still part of that journey, that that's part of that whole deal. But at the same time, all that flooded to the all to the surface thing, man, all that time, you know, doing this and doing that. And I thought about so many wonderful things, not the bad things. I thought about the times that I worked at WPDH and doing Beatles breakfast on Sundays. How I couldn't wait to do that show each and every Sunday or becoming the first person of color to be in the program director in the Hudson Valley, taking all these 97 and everybody was thrilled for me wow. having a chance to do that position. All the years of doing Marist College basketball with my friend Dean Darling, who's one of the Dean of Sportscasters. He's done Army football for so long and having that friendship that's lasted over 30 years. All the good came to the surface and it really put the bad into a box because it's very easy to look at losses and you minimize the wins. And I wasn't doing that in that standpoint. I was able to maximize the wins and say that led to this. Yeah, the losses were a part of it, but they weren't the only part or the fuel part of that part to get me to where I was going to have a chance to do something like this and be a part of the ESPN family and ESPN radio. Oh, that is that is amazing. And I, I love that viewpoint, Freddie, that, you know, it is really easy to take an L and to just say, you know what, that's it. I, I can't do this anymore. But, you know, to work really hard to get to where you want to go like that is that shows the mark of a true, a true strength. And uh, kudos to you for continuing through that, even with all the L's that, that you said that you had taken. And, you know, you had met, also mentioned in that story that plan A was to stick with Albany. Plan B was ESPN radio. I want to take that a little bit bigger, like with broadcasting itself. Did you ever have a plan B in case broadcasting did not work out? No, I didn't, because I firmly believe that I was going to have a chance to do this. And no matter where, if something didn't work out, I mean, I remember the first time I was fired from a job. I worked in Poughkeepsie at FM 104 in Poughkeepsie, New York. And when you get fired from a job, it is very, very traumatic. There's no doubt about that. And no one wants, like I mentioned, no one wants to be told you're not good enough, but they decided to have a change of direction in terms of what they wanted from a personality in that time slot. And I was not going to be a part of the change in that direction. But I never had a plan B to be out of it. I said, okay, if I got to do different things, but I'm going to get back into this. I was determined to do that. And anytime something like that has happened, I've never said to myself, okay, I'm not talented enough to be a part of this. It just didn't work out. Sometimes jobs just don't work. Personalities don't work. That means that they need to be around somebody else. But as important, if not more importantly, you need to be around somebody else different because that's going to make you better and you're going to make that place better. So I never thought about having a plan B that if it didn't work out, if I was going to do something else. That's not to say that I didn't come close because back in 1996, where I was working for a TV station in New Jersey and something happened where it didn't want they didn't want it to work out anymore. So I really started to question, was I going to be in this business? And you, everybody has that moment where you have that dividing line. Either you're going to continue or you're going to take a step and take a step somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So at that point. I said, well, I got to find employment. I'm not just going to sit around and collect unemployment and collect, well, collect welfare. That's not going to happen. So I wound up a friend of mine, one of my best friends. He was working at a modular home place. In, in, in Amenia, New York. And he said, you know, until, you know, you find what you want to do, at least you'll have some money coming in your pocket. And I said, okay, I'll try this, not knowing how long it was going to happen. 
by the second day of that job, I said, yep, I do not want to be doing this the rest of my life. There's no way I got to find a way to get back into radio. And I didn't know I was going to go about it, but I was willing to take the time to see exactly where I was going to go or what I wanted to do, especially when it came to radio. And I'm working at the weekends at this at this dance club place. And I was helping him out, you know, bouncing, keeping people in line and everything like that. And WPDH at that time was doing an event there. And all the DJs that came there, Greg Coutine, who was the program director, afternoon guy, Scott Carlin, people like that. So they remembered me when I worked at, you know, when I worked at K104. They remembered me and they said, man, Freddie, where are you working at right now? I said, I'm not working anywhere. And Scott Carlin said he almost fell on the floor. He goes, what do you mean you're not working in radio? I said, man, I've sent tapes everywhere in this area and other areas. I haven't even gotten a sniff back. Usually you get like a rejection letter. That's some kind of, okay, at least they listen to it. Mm. I said, I haven't gotten anything back from anybody. And the minute he heard that, he said, call me tomorrow. You know, we got to, we got to set something up. So I called him the next day and he picked up the phone immediately and he said, you know, I can't promise you anything full time, but at least I can get your foot back in the door by working part time if you're willing to do it. I said, absolutely, because for the longest time, K104 and PDH are always like number one, one A in the market. So it was a rivalry thing, but not really, because we all knew each other. We all liked each other. We all love being around each other. It was the salespeople that had problems with each other because <laughs> they competed for money. It was never the radio personalities on the in front of the microphones. That was never the case. So I had a chance to, because Scott Carlin at that time was a program director. Greg Coutine was his music director as well before he took over his spot and they moved Scott Carlin up, up the food chain. And they said, yeah, we will definitely find a spot for you. So I wound up doing weekends. And the next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm filling in, doing shows during the week and everything. So I'm really, really doing well from that standpoint, not knowing where it was going to lead. And that's when WWRL was changing their format from gospel to soul music. And my mom told me about it because they still live in New York City. And she said, you know, you just send your tape down here. What have you got to lose? I said, you're exactly right, because the old adage is true. Mothers do know best. And I said, I, I'm in a no situation. So I sent my tape down and Bob Law's the program director. And he called and said, I think you can work here and come on down for an interview. And I did the interview, did the audition got the job and then things worked at, worked out where the station was, you know, kind of crumbling a little bit. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a part of that foundation anymore. And I wound up going back to WPDH working full-time because Greg Coutine was a program director. Somebody had just left. He didn't realize I was still doing weekends up there as well. And he said, would you be interested in coming back? I said, absolutely. And that started that whole path from there to all these 97 to working in TV and then ESPN radio after Albany. Oh man, you're such like a wealth of knowledge and you have such a fun story. This is awesome. Thank you again for doing this because I'm loving learning so much more about you. Are you aware of what your strengths and your weaknesses are in this field? And if so, what are they? I think the one strength that's a weakness at the same time is that my mind just never stops. I'm always, always thinking about how I can be better and what can I do to make people around me better. And that is something that Ian Fitz and I talk about all the time. And Ian, you know, of course, when you're a family man like he is, he has two young daughters that he's raising and everything. I'm just married with no kids. My child is 31 years of age. So she's a woman and she's figuring out stuff. But my mind just never, ever stops that. I'm always thinking, okay, that was good. How could it be? How could it have been better? And there are times, and my wife Denise says all the time, so honey, it was good enough. It was more than good enough. You're being too hard on yourself. <laughs> so that's the one thing that I've always have said is a weakness. Another weakness is that if I get really excited about something, then my pitch level goes from maybe 80 beats per minute to about 180 beats per minute. <laughs> and you wind up making sure the information that you want to get out there is not getting out there that people can digest that. Prime example, I'm filling in a Keyshawn, Jay Will and Max with Jay Will, with Jay Williams. We were doing the show together on a Wednesday earlier this week. And I said, you're going to hear about the M word that's really going to determine exactly what it means for the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant. But I said it so quick, he thought he heard N word. So mm. he had, had like reaction. Oh, I can't wait to hear what this N word is going to be. And then <laughs> four minutes later, he realized, oh my God, you said M, not N. And then I said, I probably said it way too fast trying to get it out there. And I tell people all the time, we don't realize how much time and space we have to make sure that you don't have to rush your thoughts. So I'm always working on that. But if I have something I really want to get out there, I guess I'm so excited that I want people to hear it, that I have to really be careful not to rush it through where something gets lost or the interpretation is not going to be the way I want it to be received. 
<laughs> yeah, especially with something like M and N. They're so close together, and the oh, connotation yeah. is like, oh, whoa, what is that? <laughs> yeah. It made for a great segment because then when I got to the actual M word, meaning monumental, even Jay Will said, oh, I kind of like that better. He goes, it would have been a lot better than the N word. And this is all <laughs> when it comes to that. So it was pretty cool that we took something where he said, oh, you said M and had a lot of fun with it because that makes you more relatable because everybody has had a slip of the tongue. Lord knows in this day and age, people do that constantly, whether mm-hmm. it's social media, whether it's politicians, celebrities, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I have to worry about being forgiven for that slip of the tongue because I guarantee you, I was not the first person in that moment that had a situation that happened to them like that. For sure. <laughs> and, you know, some people think working for ESPN just consists of, you know, I'm reading the scores, I'm checking out highlights, and then I'm talking about it. But I am almost positive that that is not the case. How important is your prep work? And can you take us through a day in the life of Freddie Coleman with how you prep? The prep work never stops for me, even when the show is over, because there's always something going on. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's the offseason or the NBA. There's no such thing when you think about it, when it comes to an offseason in sports, because somebody's always has something either happening to them or they're creating that happening. It used to be this time of the year, you could just regurgitate baseball and find out what the pennant races could look like. That can be very boring because that's the same thing over and over again, unless somebody hits for a cycle or has a, a, a triple play. Those kind of things get lost because anybody can find those kind of highlights. They don't need you to narrate them when it comes to what they've already seen. But more than ever before, Something's always going on. Whether you got Baker Mayfield being traded to the Carolina Panthers, finally from the Cleveland Browns. What's going to happen with Jimmy Garoppolo? What is San Francisco going to do with him? Will Aaron Judge hit 60 to 61 home runs? And why hasn't Major League Baseball seen that take a different step to bring more eyeballs to their sport? You got the NBA, the whole Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving saga, the Brooklyn Nets. It used to be this time of year, it was slow down time. You could talk about family barbecues. You could talk about vacations and everything. You can talk about those things, but there's so many other things that can supplement that or your life stories or what you've seen and experienced can supplement that. That's one of the beauties about what we're able to do is that you can find those stories, but more often than not, those stories are going to find you. And you can say you can take so many different branches from that and flush it out. What about this? What about that? I believe this. I don't believe that. So it's always cool more than ever before that you may think nothing's going on or you may think you're going to have a lull and then snap your fingers and then you got something else out there. So it's not just about putting out scores and who's leading this race or that. It's about everything that goes with it. If there's a story out there and you're able to find it and bring that to the table that somebody may not have thought about or may not have known. Yeah, when it comes to talking about the family barbecues and stuff, when you and Jay Will were talking about his son running around his family barbecue oh. naked, oh my gosh. Oh my god. I was in tears driving to work that day. <laughs> he, he, told, he told me that the day before because it was July 4th. <laughs> and I said, You realize we're doing this at the top of the show. Now, if this was back in 2004, 2005, when I first got started ESPN radio, someone would have talked us out of it, saying, Well, that's not sports. And you know, <laughs> but more than ever before, that is a sport in terms of relatability when it comes to something that either every parent has gone through that with a son or a daughter or people have seen parents trying to deal with that or if you have not dealt with that and you're about to be a parent you're thinking oh my god that's what i have to look forward to (laughs) either way there's so many different levels that you can do that and that is something that ian and i talk about constantly that if something pops in your head and it's something that is outside of sports, but can connect it or even if it's not connected. That doesn't mean you go away from it. That is something that's really been a curious and wonderful sea change when it comes to ESPN radio. People don't mind hearing about our lives, but more importantly, you should not have any hesitation about sharing that. And that was one thing that I really had to get over. I'm thinking no one wants to hear about what I do or what my life is. I've learned time and time again that that was a complete, complete false so that people can relate to that even if they don't go through the same thing. So even if it's a good situation or bad situation that you were in, people want to hear about that because they also know you're going to get back to sports. It's not like you're taking 15, 20 minutes to pontificate about your life because then you would lose me if I'm telling the story. So I know that I'm going to be losing somebody else. But people know we're going to get back to the topics of the day, what's fresh out there. But they don't mind hearing those kind of things in addition to what's going on in the world of sports and the world of entertainment. 
Yeah, it's like you said, it makes you relatable and it makes I think people feel like they know you better. Like like I've been listening to you and Ian so long that I kind of feel like I know you guys already because, you know, you guys do that quite often. You you make yourselves relatable on top of the sports story. So it just kind of feels like I'm sitting down listening to two friends talk about sports, which is super cool, super awesome. And speaking of how awesome your guys' show is, you guys have, you know, you've outlasted reworks, shakeups some shows that were just completely taken off the air. So what do you attribute to the longevity of the show? And similarly, you as a radio host, you know, radio hosts come and go. So what separates you from the rest and attributes to your longevity as well? Because we know who we are. We know what identity is and we don't mind putting identity out there. And so many shows that work, when you listen to it, you know what it is. You may not know what you're getting, but you know what it is. And some, and also there are times where if management doesn't believe in a show, they'll just say, you know what, this is not going anywhere. We're going to take it off. And I've seen other times, not just at ESPN Radio, but other places where they believe too much in a show that's not working. And I think I think a lot of that has come to the fact that they may not know exactly what the show is or they don't know how to present mm-hmm. the identity about that show. Our identity is you get us. You're going to get us and we're going to get you. And it's all of us working together, all of us being together. And there are going to be times we disagree, plenty of times we disagree. There are going to be plenty of times we're going to be opposite sides of things. But when you listen to Freddie Fitzsimmons, you know you're going to get two guys that really don't mind laughing at themselves because we laugh at other people all the time. So it's not just a one-way street when it comes to that. And that's been a big identity with our show. We're going to be very, very transparent. We're not hiding anything. We're not trying to keep anything away from people when it comes to us or anything like that. And that's been the hallmark of what be, we've been able to do. You know, you're getting from Ian Fitzsimmons. You know, you're getting from Freddie Coleman, but also something unpredictable can happen that you'll say, yeah, that's part and parcel of the show. And a big part of that is what we do with uh, our plus story at the end of the night, because very rarely is it sports related, but it's always something that either you missed in the headlines or maybe you saw in the headlines. Oh, man, I saw about that. People understand, okay, that's part of our identity, that they're going to bring us something that is really going to make us think. And plenty of times, Ian does, all the time, Ian does not know a story I'm going to put out there. So when he (laughs) hears the tease, it piques his interest. And if his interest is piqued, then I know somebody out there listening that does know the story, their interest is going to be piqued. And it's up to me to deliver it. So that's also part of our identity, that we deliver all the time. Whatever you expect to get, we're going to put it out there and we're going to deliver that. And that's been a huge, huge part of our longevity and why I firmly believe that our show may not get the credit that the earlier shows do. And I get it because of where we are, but we'll take our show and stand up against any show against any network and not just hold our own, but beat you at your own game. And that's a big part of our identity, too. And you got the segments that you guys bring to it to make it fun as well is part of what I think makes you guys stand out from the rest too. Like uh, my favorite segment that you guys have is one thought. And that's usually because you guys don't pull any punches with your one thought. (laughs) (laughs) And the beauty of that is that certain stories that you can't really, it's it's not five minutes worthy, but you can really make it about a 90 seconds worthy and Mm. people can feel how they want to feel. Because a long time ago, when I did the show with Jonathan Coachman, we did the show on the weekends, we had one word and he was able to take that and put it on TV. So I didn't want to do the same thing again mm-hmm. when Ian and I got together. So I said, OK, how can I make it different? But something that I think can really be topical. And then that's where one thought came about, because now it's not just one word. It's expanding upon just calling it one thought. And it can sometimes it could be a great rant that Ian and I have like three minutes. and I just let him cook. There's no need to get in the way. And other times it'll just be something really quick because sometimes we'll think alike and he'll say something. And my one thing I've made a habit of said what he said, let's move on to the next one because (laughs) and he'll bust out laughing. And I know people think, yeah, that's what I was thinking. There's no need to overkill it. Yeah. What he said, let's move on to the next one. Move on to another one thought. So that's something that that transparency that really, really works that there's no need to say. Yeah. And in addition to say, hey, he said it best. Let's just move on to something else. And there are times where you are working solo without Ian or without a guest co-host. So what would you say is the biggest difference working a show solo versus working with a co-host? You really have to worry about pacing because it can be very easy to come out of blocks 150 miles an hour. And then you have nothing left by the end of the show. So I've always been a big believer that when you're doing a show by yourself, 
that really when you have to manifest taking your time and also incorporate sound. We incorporate sound anyway, but you really can incorporate more because that becomes a co-host with you. When somebody said something and reacted to it and you can react to that reaction or somebody has a press conference and then you can dive into that if it's part of the story of the day. So that's a big part of it that if you're going to co-host a show and it doesn't matter if it's one hour or if it's four hours, really pacing really works because there are times you can speed up, there are times you can back off, there are times you can find the middle of the road. So I always compare it to when you see three lanes on the highway, where you have the passing lane, where you have the travel lane, and where you have the slowdown lane. And you can really make it work throughout a segment, not just a show, by, by even the transversing all those different kinds of lanes, where this way, whatever you want to get out is going to get out, but you're able to change those kind of speeds and have your audience understand exactly where you stand or what you stand for. Mm. And you're able to do that. And not the feel you have to go eight miles an hour or a hundred miles an hour. You can fluctuate back and forth and make that work. That's a big part of being a standalone host when you get a chance to do that. No, for sure. And that's great advice for anybody that's out there that's trying to get into the business and and seeing the difference between a co-host and solo. Uh, you know, and you know, likewise, you've stepped in for first take and other shows that also appear on ESPN's television. So what do you prefer, radio and television? And what would you say is the biggest difference between the two? Well, I'm always going to prefer radio, but I'm never going to pass up any chance to be on TV because that gives you a chance to speak to a different audience that may not have a chance to listen to you at night on the radio. So I'm always going to be in favor of radio because that's where that's where the dinner is when it comes to what I do. But you get a chance to get a snack or dessert like that. Yeah, you can't pass with that ice cream when it comes to first take or filling in the earlier shows. To me, I don't for me, and I'm only going to speak for me, there really is no difference going from radio to TV, mainly because you're doing the same things except people are seeing you talk about those things and you have a chance to do it in a different format. So it's always easier and I've always said this for radio, radio people to do TV, they have a TV people to do radio because radio is an art form. That's not to say TV is not an art form, but TV is a very visceral form that if people see you and don't like you, then they're not going to pay attention to what you have to say. In radio, they can't see you. They can only hear what you have to say and they have to lean in and they have to be a part of that conversation. So they don't have a visceral reaction unless you have a scratchy voice and people don't want to hear it. That's a whole different conversation. But more often than not, they're going to give you a chance because they're banking on what they're going to listen to. Mm. It's going to be very pleasing to the ear and pleasing to the mind. You take your eyes out of that equation. So it's always been easy for me to go that route from radio to TV than somebody doing TV to radio. That's not to say it can't be done, but it's easier for me because I'm just going to be me on TV. You just hear you just get a chance to see me doing it in addition to hearing me doing it. So anytime I'm on first take, I never allow myself to be overwhelmed by the enormity of that show, because believe me, that show has very, very powerful tentacles. Plenty of people so invested in that show by what Stephen A. Smith has been able to do and Molly Curum. I'm going to have Chris Mad Dog Russo, who's been a great addition mm. each and every Wednesday. There's so many people vested in that show that if somebody's on there that they're that they're, they're not the regulars, they, I don't like that person. Oh, they got the B team there today. And I've always said, well, the B team on first take is better than the A team what you're doing. So you can say whatever you want, and I don't <laughs> care about that. I get a chance to do that. But nothing changes. It's just I put makeup on, I got a suit on, and I'm talking with different people and putting my brand of what I do out there that a lot of people may not have had a chance to experience before if they had not had a chance to catch our radio show each and every night. That's great. And Freddie, thank you so much for your time. I do have a couple of fun questions before I let you go today. How do you decide what songs make it onto the show? Because at the top of the hour, you're always posting on Twitter. Here's what's going on this hour. And it's always the jams. There's never one time that I'm like, oh, Freddie, you should not have played this jam. <laughs> it, it's feel. And to me, if something has a great rhythm, it doesn't have to be an RB song or a hip hop song. There are plenty of country songs that have a great feel. For example, Chris Stapleton, a lot of stuff he does that's mid-tempo and up-tempo has great feel. Ed Sheeran, Shape of You has a great feel. It just sounds so good when you come back from commercial and you're hearing that coming out. So it's always a feel and rhythm thing for me, whether it's something that's today or something in the past. Uh, the Rolling Stones always have great rhythm songs. It could be Missed You. It could be Brown Sugar. It could be uh, Between a Rock and a Hard Place in the late 80s, early 90s. So that factors a lot into what kind of feel and rhythm that it has. And there's certain songs in this day and age, like a lot of trap soul songs, 
they're just too slow. And it just doesn't sound right to me. Those are my ears stating that. But then, for example, Nipsey Hussle always has great feel to what he does. The baby always has great feel. So that factors into that equation. So that's why I never restrict it because I always thought that if I ever could be in charge of music for a show, I didn't want to just hear Jay-Z or Guns N' Roses or ACDC all the time because they'll play the same Guns N' Roses, Jay-Z and ACDC all the time. Yep. ACDC has rock and roll and noise pollution. That's a fantastic record. But you're still hearing Back in Black and You Shook Me All Night Long and Thunderstruck when they have a whole category of music that's unbelievable. So that's why I base it on. It could be a jam band. It could be a funk band. But if someone has a great feeling, great rhythm, and I know somebody's driving on, they hear it, even if they don't know the record, it, it, it brings something like, oh, man, that's pretty cool, man. That gets me going. That's what it, that's what I base a lot of that on, that kind of feeling rhythm. And your social media presence is large. I mean, you post like, oh, we got two hours to the, to the show. We got 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 15 minutes. What do you attribute that to? Is it just to get everybody on the same page? Like, hey, guys, you're not going to want to miss this show today. Yeah, that's what it is. It's building a sense of urgency that even if you miss the show, you're going to feel like you're missing out on something. And even if one person is able to do that per night, that's one more person that you've gotten their attention. And it really started very, very simple and very, very innocent. One day I'm walking into the studio. I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to let people know what's going on and show them the campus and everything like that. Not thinking I was going to do it every night. And the first night I did it, Justin Craig, our program director said, you know, when did you start that? I said, well, tonight was the first night that I started that. He said, are you planning on doing that every night? I said, well, I really wasn't. He said, man, you really should do that. Mm -hmm. And Shannon Penn, who's the producer at the time, and then Chris Mitchell became our producer before Tara Slajewski, they all said, you know what, that's one of the fun things where people know about the show and doing that where they don't know where you're going to be. I've done it from the cafeteria, say, hey, this is what the cafeteria looks like. I've walked up, had somebody leaving, like Christine Lisi, who does the sports and updates and talking with her. So everybody knows that, okay, what's going to happen, that it's going to be, we're going to find what's going on in the show and what where Freddie's going to be, but where is he going to be or who is he going to encounter? You build that sense of urgency that people lean in and say, okay, I can't wait to hear what, they, what they're going to talk about, especially when that kicks off the show. So that's a big part of bringing that sense of urgency to the table, letting everybody know that we like what we do. We believe you're going to like what we do, especially when you find out what's coming up and you don't know exactly what's going to happen with that either. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of times when uh, I, I don't know what you're doing. So I like wait. Sometimes I'll check Twitter in the morning. Like, is he going to be on Keyshawn J. Willemax today? Mm -hmm. Is he going to be on first take? What's he doing today? So you're definitely working it and it, it is working. So I'm, I'm proof right here that it works. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, people realize that we have fun and it's all about that fun aspect because there are going to be plenty of times that people go through things in life where everything's just trying to wear them down and beat them down. If they can click on that and get 60 seconds of breathing and relief, then, then I know I'm doing my job when it comes to that. And speaking of breathing and relief, when are we going to get the Freddie and Fitzsimmons show back on a podcast level? Because that's when I'm going to be able to breathe easy because, you know, that I'm on Pacific time. So right. oh, just drop my mic. I'm on Pacific time. So sometimes it's hard for me to listen to the show when you guys are live. So I would love for ESPN to bring the Freddie and Fitzsimmons show back as a podcast as well. Well, we may not be doing that, but we're going to do starting September football season rolls around. So here's a scoop for you that we're going to start bringing back clips of what we had a chance to talk about. And we're going to post those on social media. We're going to post mm -hmm. them on Instagram. We're going to post them on Twitter through our, our uh, social media accounts and also ESPN radio. So look for that in September once football season gets started, because people talked about that was a really cool interview. Can you replay it back? So instead of having like a whole podcast, we have to search it out. We can say, hey, if you miss what so-and-so had to say, Here's our interview with him, and we're going to start posting those clips. So it's, it'll be an all-day podcast, you think about it, that you go to our social media handles or ESPN Radio, and then you can click on that, and it takes you right to the sound where you'll be able to hear that interview, and it's going to be there. So that is something, when September rolls around, we're going to start doing that, that if we had a great conversation between me and Ian, you'll be able to hear what we had to say, and you can react any way you want. So starting in September, that's something that we're going to do where we kind of do a podcast kind of feel but it's going to be in real time, but you can always go back and listen to it in case you missed anything we had to say or an interview that we have with somebody else that you really, really like and you want to hear that again. 
I'll take it. Something is better than nothing. <laughs> Amen. No doubt. Amen. <laughs> All right, Freddie. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a true pleasure, a true honor for me. Like I've been saying the entire time, I'm such a big fan of you. I'm such a big fan of Ian and your guys' show. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Go ahead and plug anything that you're doing. Let everybody know when and where they can find you and all those shows that you're a part of. Uh, by the way, you can always find me on Twitter. My handle at Colin ESPN. Don't forget Freddie Simmons. Monday through Friday on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Series X and Channel 80, as well as TuneIn Radio from 9 p. to 1 a.m. Eastern time. And, yeah, look for me a couple of times on Keyshawn, Jamal, and Max, so I'll get a chance to fill in and hang out with those guys. Definitely some dates in July, definitely some dates in August, so keep an eye on that. And I get a sense I'll be on first take a couple of times before the summer is over. So to say I'll be all over the place will be an understatement, but I tell you what, I don't refuse any of those opportunities because – I am blessed to love what I do and do what I love. And there are a lot of people, even inside and outside of our business, that can't say that. Oh, that is awesome. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm checking your Twitter every day. So (laughs) that way I know what you're doing. For Freddie Coleman, I am Rajiv. We will catch you all next time.